I like to engage in astral perversion, and my fondness is to be sucked off by ringtail fruit bats while engaging in oral erotic relationships with homosexual aardvarks and bathtubs full of lukewarm jello and late night motel plate jobs, slurp circles, and jello orgies. That's Ed Sanders speaking in 1968. He was an activist and a poet and the publisher of a journal called Fuck You, Magazine of the Arts. And he was the leader of one of the weirdest bands of the 1960s called The Fugs. They were a well-loved underground band based in the countercultural hub of New York's East Village, but not everyone understood their appeal, like the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, who described them in a 1969 letter as repulsive to right-thinking people. And while the first half of this episode focuses on the Fugs, the second half explores a UK punk band who fooled both MI6 and the CIA into thinking that they were Soviet spies which all sounds like a good place to start a podcast series to me. Oh, I was uh, asked to uh, show my personality in 30 Seconds Iola. For... I had it a minute ago. Must have left it at home. I'm Max Easton, and this is the first episode of a podcast series called Barely Human. It's about forgotten underground musicians and cultural outsiders, so it makes sense to start the journey in the 1960s a time when an artistic counterculture had a voice loud enough to stir a movement into action. At the time, the conservative norms of Western culture were being challenged by the progressive youth, who called themselves beatniks or hippies, which sounds kind of passé now, but they had grand aims of social upheaval. As the movement came together, it took a stance against the Vietnam War, contributed to civil rights marches for racial and sexual equality, and pushed for things that we now take for granted, like the right to recreational sex. The countercultural boom, alongside its related socio-political movements, sparked an awakening. It was about demanding basic freedoms for everyone, not just whoever was considered well-behaved by the establishment, which valued chastity, temperance and civility. The countercultural artists were communicating the things that people had always done behind closed doors. Where academics like Alfred Kinsey had taken stock of actual sexual behaviour in their studies of the 40s and 50s. The art of the 60s, through lewd books, recordings, alternative cinema and pornography, suggested not just the existence of alternative behaviour, but gave viewable evidence. So it was difficult for the authorities to keep the reality of personal freedoms down, but that didn't mean they weren't trying. Laws were in place banning the circulation of obscene or blasphemous documents, and as social standards changed, the courts would be flooded with new examples that tested those definitions, and somehow, the fugs would stumble into the crossfire. The story of the fugs, while not a famous one, is a crucial countercultural tale. The group's founders, Ed Sanders and Tully Kupferberg, met in the East Village of New York City, both distributing underground press, like Sanders' arts journal, Fuck You, and Kufferberg's magazine called Yeah. And in what was more or less a joke, they decided to start a band. They brought in drummer Ken Weaver and added Steve Weber and Peter Sample as the talent. And somehow, despite Sanders and Kupferberg having no idea what they're about to get themselves into, the Fugs became central figures of the 1960s counterculture. Here's Sanders describing how the Fugs got together. We formed at my bookstore, which is the Peace Eye Bookstore. Uh, 
with the idea of singing songs to the American public of a social nature and of and presenting poetry through song and improving the content of American rock lyrics and uh, presenting messages in our lyrics as well as uh, the usual teenage uh, thrill rock that was being presented at the time. The members of the group were activists and the Fugs aimed to extend the goals of the 60s hippie revolutions through their music. They would criticise abuses of state power to stand firmly alongside the growing anti-war movement with songs like CIA Man and the ludicrous Kill for Peace. Musically, they were inspired by the civil rights songs that were played at the marches they attended, which were simple three-chord folk staples. But with their exposure to jazz, their penchant for getting high and being self-described randy young men, the fogs got weird. At best, their songs might have been valuable protest songs, but a lot of the time they were strange, crude and perverted. The question of why the fogs aren't spoken about in the same breath as the countercultural peers is answered with a quick listen of their music. With songs like Boobs A Lot or others like Coca-Cola Douche, which spoke of the benefits to the oral sex experience following a soda treatment, it hardly put the fogs in line with the better-known figures of the time. And while someone like Allen Ginsberg was a contemporary, an occasional guest member of the band's looser performances, he wasn't so into their cover of his poem, Howl, which sounds like a mockery of the classic when read in the Fug style. The band's core members barely knew how to play their chosen instruments, which included a toy piano for melody and cardboard boxes for the beat. And while their first recordings were scrapped and disowned by the band, they were eventually released against their will by their first label, ESP Records. These songs made it onto an LP called Virgin Fugs, which began with a theme song that unintentionally parodies the entire scene that they were instrumental in creating. Oh, we hate a war. Oh, we love sex. A twos are threes, a fours are fives, LSD, a dimethyl tripped, a grope for peace, a naked and ready, poets and freaks, a mad motherfucker, so east side. We're Songs like east that would appear in a live set that would swing between extended jams and postmodern performance art that was a hallmark of the hippies and a nuisance to local authorities. Sometimes when we appear in a small town in the United States, uh, we nearly get freaked off the set by the fuzz because of uh, they don't like uh, my orgiastic microphony or they don't like the way Tilly Kufferberg, uh, you know, plays with his... Uh, <laughs> or they don't like some of our routines. Uh. As their music aligned to the hippies' movement of peace, goodwill and progressive ideals, the fogs would begin to make some enemies and their absurdist approach began to catch the eye of conventional society. There's no doubt that the silliness of bands like the Fugs would annoy your cookie-cutter conservative, and the band began to be judged for the movement's actions as much as their own. 
The practice of flag burning as an anti-war statement drew the authorities to events in the East Village. And after inaccurate reporting around the FOG's anti-American stage shows, the police and fire departments showed up to put a stop to them. While the band were in violation of fire codes, it wasn't the flag of the United States that they were burning. In their own mockery of the act, the band torched a flag for the home of New York's counterculture. Up in flames went a flag that read... Lower East Side. Rumours of flag burning and similar reports about the fogs began to madden the right wing, and in 1967, Ed Sanders became a target. He received a package at the post office which held within it a copy of Dostoevsky's The Idiot with a card that read, Big boy has the contract. Red is the finger, you are the mark. Sanders looked inside and timidly returned the parcel over the counter to a horrified postal clerk who saw a parcel containing not just shitty poetry but a hollowed-out section containing a homemade bomb. They were getting attention from the people they were opposing, and while mail bombs and death threats would be frightening, they weren't yet ready to stop poking the establishment. In 1967, one of the most famed protests in history occurred on the lawn of the Pentagon. It was immortalised in the flower power photo that featured a hippie placing a carnation in the barrel of a military policeman's rifle, a symbol of peaceful protest. And while that's the image that lasts, there was something a whole lot more bizarre going on. In the background of that photo were a whole host of flower-wielding hippies. Activist Abby Hoffman waved a water pistol filled with LSD at the nervous cops. Magician Kenneth Anger attempted to levitate the Pentagon And as he went about his routine, the fogs were set up on the back of a truck, staging an exorcism of the CIA headquarters. And as this scene played out, the fogs had the crowd chanting at the building. Failing to levitate the Pentagon as an end to the Vietnam War, the fogs packed up and went back to the East Village. And 50 years of senseless war and surveillance since suggests that their exorcism was ineffective. By the boss, don't. On that road. Won't you light them all up? Come on, fire. Events like the exorcism of the Pentagon were raising the FUG's profile, and while they were knocking on the doors of the establishment's institutions, they'd get some of the attention they sought, but maybe not the kind of attention that they were prepared for. In March of 1969, a letter was received by the FBI from a concerned citizen sent directly to the organization's head, J. Edgar Hoover. The unnamed informer sent a copy of the Virgin Fugs LP, which Hoover held at his desk while reading the writer's horrified review of the record. I believe you'll agree with me, after you've listened to the enclosed disc, that it is the filthiest and most vulgar thing the human mind could possibly conceive. I think the time is long past due when the great mass of decent Americans can be assured that music such as this will not be allowed to be peddled to their kids by great numbers of record shops across the country. Hoover must have listened to the LP because he agreed and replied... It is repulsive to right-thinking people and can have serious effects on our young. But while the FBI tried to find a case to throw the fugs and their recordings to the courts, they had trouble charging the band for a breach of obscenity law. The legislation's wording required that the work in question must be sexually provocative or have no redeeming political or social value. And on balance, the fugs were declared not obscene by the FBI. 
But is failing to meet that standard really a victory? If they were truly effective as countercultural agents, the FBI might have spent more time with their file. But the Fugs were just one of many that the authorities of the late 60s were investigating. At the time, both the FBI and CIA took issue with the activists within the counterculture, who they considered a threat to America's security and values. They established programs to frighten and discredit prominent members of the counterculture, from surveillance and intimidating visits to their homes, to an operation that asked record labels to stop advertising in the underground press in order to limit funding to these cultural terrorists. From the FBI and CIA's perspective, artists like the Fugs were not much different to the more violent countercultural agents of the time, like left-wing radicals the Weather Underground. I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. If you want to find us, this is where we are. In every tribe, commune, dormitory, barracks and townhouse, where kids are making love, smoking dope and loading guns. The stress and paranoia that followed show closures and death threats were all becoming too much for the Fugs, and the countercultural approach was beginning to feel futile anyway. So after five years and seven albums, the first iteration of the group disbanded in 1969. I don't know what the true legacy of the Fugs is. They were either unacknowledged revolutionaries or just a bunch of East Coast hippies. Either way, they're not really a part of the history most of us are aware of. The Fugs may have managed to attract the attention of the authorities at the time, but it was an unplanned mess, an accident, all of which was built on a foundation of adolescent comedy. The story of the Fugs has an interesting parallel to other subversive figures in history. Those at the dawn of the 1980s would trade all that clownish absurdity for a surgical, precise and strategic approach. They would also utilise subversive media and play with ideas of free and alternative living. But they had seen the ultimate failure of peaceful protest. Playing the cultural terrorist role for a new counterculture were the members of England's punk movement. Parts of early punk expanded upon many of the 60s socio-political efforts. The demands of the countercultural side of the movement were based around the elimination of prejudice. They were key allies to the anti-racism movement and the second wave of feminism and had an anti-war focus based around nuclear disarmament and demands for pacifism. And in its strongest anti-establishment stance, subsets of the punk movement advocated for the dismantling of capitalist structures through the process of anarchy. For a growing community in London's surrounds, a collection of bands began to create music that came to be called anarcho-punk, led by the politicised collective called Crass. Crash came out of an open house cottage in Essex called Dial House. It was a progressive home with an open doors policy and was the headquarters for member Penny Rimbo's publishing imprint called Existential Press, which distributed creative and political print works. After the explosion of punk, an opportunity to use music to send a message to the people presented itself. Rimbo jammed with Steve Ignorant and after bringing in other friends like G. Voucher, Pete Wright, N.A. Palmer... Eve Libertine and Joy Devev, they became crass. They were a rugged band who were full of energy. They merged their commune-like beginnings with the aggression and power of early punk music, and in doing so they planted the seeds of an anarchist movement that survives to this day, tied to a subgenre of music that they helped create. 
And its sound was more or less an accident that came out of untrained hands trying to express the volume required of their strong messages. The primitive sounds of their first song, Do They Owe Us a Living, is still the hallmark crash recording, appearing on the 1978 LP, The Feeding of the 5000. This record would feature songs like They've Got a Bomb, So What, and Reject of Society, and these kinds of anti-establishment anthems would land them almost immediately into controversial territory from the moment they sent the album to the pressing plant. The album's first song was the problem. I am no feeble Christ, not me. He hangs in glib delight upon his cross above my body. Christ, forgive. It was set at the side of the crucifixion, with singer Eve Libertine standing at Jesus' feet and berating him as he hangs from the cross. She describes his complicity in war and mocks his faux humility. She calls him a petulant child and accuses Jesus himself of the oppression of humankind, and it ends with these screams. Crass's label, Small World Records, sent the feeding of the 5,000 to a pressing plant in Ireland. But the workers at the plant refused to go ahead with the job unless that song was removed from the record. The label conceded, and the album was eventually released with two minutes of silence in its place and retitled The Sound of Free Speech. This compromise angered the band and forced them to take back control of their work. They created their own record label for the purposes of releasing Reality Asylum as a 7-inch single, and they found a pressing plant prepared to make the record. But the blasphemous content rubbed the broader culture. Police raided record stores that stocked the 7-inch, and the Vice Squad visited Crass to discuss their prosecution for criminal blasphemy. And while these efforts failed, the threat of prosecution prevented many record stores from stocking the 7-inch. Crass continued their mission. The follow-up record stations of the Crass solidified their intent as a band before Eve Libertine and Joy Devev took over the vocals for a 1981 LP that they called Penis Envy. The record focused on the many oppressions of women, attacking the patriarchy's control on female sexuality and the opening song, Bardem Motel. Sexual repression and misogyny were targets, and so was the institution of marriage, a position which they'd turn into a glorious prank. Posing as a generic publication company called Creative Recording and Sound Services, the band would press the song Our Wedding as a 7-inch flexi-disc and offer it as a free promotional item to be included in teen magazine Romance. The magazine's editors weren't wise to the song's intentions, and included the flexi-disc alongside a full-page ad for the release, which had all the sonic touchstones of a joyful love song, but was a vicious parody of monogamous love and marriage that peaked with a chilling delivery of these lyrics. They were viciously tearing through Britain's institutions and were ruffling feathers. Their shows were stormed by members of white nationalist organisation, the National Front, 
biker gangs beat them in the street for their appearance, and in setting their sights on anti-war subjects, the national government would return their glance. As Margaret Thatcher moved her focus from austerity measures on the homeland to wars abroad, Crass would furiously write the song, How Does It Feel?, which asks Thatcher a simple question about her choice to submit British soldiers to wars of its own creation. Members of Parliament caught wind of Crass's musical disloyalty to Britain, and the content of the song made it into the House of Commons for question time. I give way to the honourable gentleman. But instead of a member of the opposition asking Thatcher directly, How does it feel to be the mother of a thousand dead? Conservative MP Timothy Egger attempted to stir Parliament to turn on Crass by asking the Attorney General of the United Kingdom to prosecute the ban. There is one statistic... But the Attorney-General found no breach of obscenity law. A punk act was on the lips of Parliament, and the band would find encouragement in their methods and continue their hoax-making. In founding member Steve Ignorant's words, It was as if we'd hooked a whale while fishing for minnows. We didn't know whether we'd let go of the rod or keep pulling until we exhausted ourselves, which we knew, inevitably, we would. In 1983, a year after the Falklands War, a mysterious tape was sent to the press featuring a recorded phone conversation between Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. The tape revealed the world leaders discussing their bombing of an Argentinian submarine in the Falklands, followed by a chat about establishing a nuclear battlefront in Europe against the Soviets. The genuine voices of Mrs Thatcher and President Reagan. Through the crackles, he seems to be saying he'd fire missiles at his allies to keep the Soviets back behind their borders during a war. The tapes were circulated through the press and featured on the evening news, alarming the US State Department and the British government. They were analysed by MI6 and the CIA, and while it was quickly found to be doctored footage, the source of the tape was attributed by the US to Soviet subversion and by Britain to Argentinian spies, or more correctly local left-wing forces. The authors of the tape were crass. A British punk rock group is claiming they're behind a fake tape recording which fooled the CIA. The American intelligence agency thought it was part of a Soviet disinformation plan. After the ban took responsibility for the tape, Thatcher and her government briefly discussed taking action against them, but ultimately decided that forged cassette tapes, zine distribution and punk music wasn't a real threat to international relations, and she was advised to ignore them. Regardless, they had a seat at the table to speak to the evening news about their intent as artists and protesters and managed to get their message out and into the public sphere. People know that governments are corrupt. People know that governments are violent. We did the tape to show that they're also small-minded, petty and stupid. For the CIA to issue that statement shows just how petty they are. As 1984 dawned, a number of factors led to the end of the band. There were financial difficulties that came out of fighting obscenity charges and an unfortunate accounting error. In an effort to keep costs down, the band would adopt a pay-no-more-than philosophy to prevent retailers inflating the cost of their records. And when they set a value for their releases in 1983, they failed to account for value-added tax, which crippled them at the end of the financial year. But while cynics like to declare financial failure is the real reason crass ended, 
The truth sits in the catalogue numbers of their records. The band and label knew from the beginning that this project would be short-lived. If you look closely at those catalogue numbers, you'll notice that they're counting down the number of years to 1984 as a nod to George Orwell's predicted dystopia. The feeding of the 5000 LP was catalogued 6 to 1984 Stations of the Crass 5 to 1984 Penis Envy 3 to 1984 Yes sir, I will 1 to 1984 And in the label's final year, the catalogue number of 1984 itself was given to a crass 7-inch titled You're Already Dead The stories of crass and the fugs highlight what it takes for an underground artist to mean something to the broader culture. To have artistic influence is one thing, but to send a message to the government is an impressive feat for a pack of self-organised artists. These bands may have been little more than a nuisance to government strategists, but they stood for something, and they did so in a way unrestrained by conventional thought. Despite existing a decade apart, their goals, methods and activities are surprisingly similar. They both collectivised and opposed war and corrupt governments. They both fought for equality and fairness, and even though punks and hippies are so often seen as opposite ends of a spectrum, their actions as countercultural agents were often intimately connected. The Fogs and Crass may be pretty much ignored by mainstream history, and whether their methods were futile or silly or a waste of time is probably up to you. But put simply, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher knew who the band Crass were, and it seems that J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, sat down at his desk and listened to the fogs. 